Simple Beep, Episode 3, Kaleidoscope Scheme Creation. Hello, and welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And today we're continuing from our episode last time, which was all about kaleidoscope and interface customization on the Mac. We talked about the the larger ecosystem of some of our favorite kaleidoscope schemes and scheme creators, as well as the software itself. But in the process of gathering all that research, Ed decided to take it upon himself to make a scheme of his own. Right. Well, I asked you, Brian, last time whether you had done that (laughs) back in the original kaleidoscope days, whether you'd actually made a full production scheme. And you said, no, hadn't quite made it. And No, thank you. Neither had I, to be honest. Um, But I remember going in and tinkering with schemes and just sort of maybe making a couple modifications. And then the question was, well, could I really do the whole process beginning to end now today with probably a lot more sort of graphic design type knowledge and that sort of thing under my belt in the past 15 years? But with the added difficulty of needing to do it within an emulation layer to make it possible on your modern hardware. Exactly. So this did up the degree of difficulty, as we will see. And my inspiration for the scheme, what I called my dumb idea, was that we had been talking a lot about interface and new interface in Mac OS X, especially with Yosemite. I thought, hey, there is a scheme that doesn't exist in the scheme archive because, well, it was impossible unless you had a time machine. (laughs) So let's see if I could actually take the Yosemite interface and bring it back to a kaleidoscope scheme. And uh, just to say, when I started this, I thought, well, I'm going to do this with the non-retina artwork for Yosemite because, well, obviously there was no retina screens back in classic Mac days and it would match up better. There were, this also increased the difficulty a little bit because there are lots of screenshots, really good screenshots of interface and controls and stuff in Yosemite, especially uh, in recent articles that were reviewing the new interface or things like that. But they were often retina screenshots. I could scale them down, but they would look a little bit weird. But I have a MacBook Pro non-retina that's running Yosemite. So that was my canonical source. I said, hey, this is rendering the official non-retina art for Yosemite. And we'll see what we can do with that. Uh, before we get into that, uh, we just have a couple announcements about our show in general. First, we'd like to thank everybody who has subscribed so far, and uh, some of you have even sent feedback, which uh, has just been great to read, and, and thank you very much. Yeah, we've gotten some really great comments, both uh, through our website and over Twitter, and we're really pleased that you people are enjoying the show. And we want to thank a couple people in particular for helping get the word out about the show uh, namely Jason Snell of The Incomparable and Six Colors, and also Stephen Hackett of Relay FM and 512 Pixels. Thanks, guys. You've been a big help for a baby podcast. One other thing that we want to mention about the show is where to find our show notes. And I always heard this on other podcasts and thought that it was just kind of like a little bit that people did until at Thanksgiving weekend, I was telling my family about the podcast and my mom was real interested and she wanted to listen and said, oh, like, just use the Apple podcast app that's already on your iPhone. And she did. It was super easy. She just searched for it and downloaded it. No problem. And I looked at it and I went, where are the show notes? And the fact of the matter is, there is no way, not even through a web view, not even through a like link out to Safari, that you can get show notes from the Apple podcast app. So now I realize to all podcasters out there why you tell people where to find the show notes. And for now... It's very simple. Just go to our homepage, which is simplebeep.com. And we've only got the three episodes up there for now. And the newest episode will always be at the top. Once we get to the point where we've got episodes scrolling off the main page, we'll put together a nice little directory that'll also be available right there on our website. So creating a kaleidoscope scheme for macOS 10.10 Yosemite using, uh, like you said, canonical screenshots um, as a as a baseline resource, but doing the work inside an emulator of, I believe it's System 7.5.3? Yeah, that's what I've got running, which is maybe not ideal, but it's what I've got. <laughs> so let's just recap the basics of how kaleidoscope schemes work and are built. 
and then actually go into the sort of nitty gritty. So if you recall, there are sort of two major kaleidoscope scheme formats, the kaleidoscope one format, and then the kaleidoscope two format. And the kaleidoscope two format, what was, was what allowed a lot more creativity, customization, and uh, variability in terms of window shape and control shapes, instead of just having a standard rectangular window border. The Kaleidoscope 1.x schemes were really ingenious. If you look inside them, they're extremely efficient in terms of the artwork that they use. Pretty much everything that's done inside of a Kaleidoscope 1 scheme is done with little color icon resources that almost none of them are bigger than 16 by 16 pixels. Because what they could do is chop up the window into these very small parts and even have a 16 by 16 pixel sort of diagram. It's not even a mini window. It's just a diagram that represents the entire border of the window and then extract color information from that and put it in the appropriate places. So those were very sort of neat and tidy packages. Uh, The Kaleidoscope 2 format, though, was a little bit more advanced and used much bigger artwork. And because of this, it wasn't a fixed template. So these 16 by 16 resources in the Kaleidoscope 1 schemes, it was just if you put a pixel at coordinates 3, 4, it specifies the text color. And if you put it at this edge, it specifies that border, those sort of things. But with Kaleidoscope 2, you had variable sizes, and that meant that you also had to specify which pieces of your artwork corresponded to which piece of the window. And with Yosemite having not just perfectly square windows, the the choice was made for me. We were going for a Kaleidoscope 2 scheme. Also, overall, in terms of the complexity of those two formats, a complete Kaleidoscope 1 scheme would have on the order of maybe 75 pieces of artwork in it, artwork resources. And like I said, they were all small. Whereas a complete Kaleidoscope 2 scheme, as we'll see, has generally more than 200. And this is where things began to bog down in the end for me. You've described these as color icons in in the big resource package. Uh, So I know from my limited experience with mostly icon creation, a tiny bit of, uh, I think I said, Audion MP3 player skins, I did all of that in RezEdit, and uh, I think RezEdit had definitely had 16 by 16 editing abilities, but those are limited to 256 colors. You could do a 32 by 32, but like you said, in Kaleidoscope 2.x, you know, you could do arbitrary sizes. So you start with the colored icons, but there are a whole bunch of other resources. Yeah, so if you open up a Kaleidoscope scheme, again, in RezEdit, whenever you open up any file in RezEdit, you see all of the resources in the resource fork, and they're organized by resource type. And there are some standard ones, like Brian mentioned, uh, the color icons, the 32 by 32 icons, uh, which are usually referred to as ICL8. That stands for Icon Large 8-Bit, I think. So you had ICL8, ICS8 for small icons that were 16 by 16. And then... Some other sort of standard resource types were used by Kaleidoscope. Uh, The PPAT pattern resources were used for repeating patterns that showed up in things like desktop patterns. Kaleidoscope could also customize the background of finder windows so they weren't just on a white background. And things like the indeterminate progress bar, where it's not actually counting up to the progress, but it's just saying something is going on and there's usually like a diagonal hash pattern Moving along, that's a a pattern resource as well. Some of the other standard resources that are used in there are uh, the sound resources for window shade sounds, which I just left as the default for Yosemite. Yosemite got gained a new feature there (laughs) while losing several others. And the CLUT, the color lookup table resources, and these were sort of a standard system resource. Well, in System 7 and Mac OS 8, they were used for coloring dialog boxes, modal dialog boxes, and that sort of thing. Kaleidoscope also introduced a few of its own resource types, and these are where things get a bit complex. The big one is the WND pound resource. Not hashtag. Hashtags weren't invented yet, Brian. <laughs> Pardon me. And those are the resources that they have just a bunch of numerical fields with various names like border size, this, that, the other thing. 
all these numerical fields that specify which part of the icon resources then draw the windows. And also the CINF resources, that stands for Control Info, which does the exact same thing, except instead of for the the window itself, it does it for each of the controls, like buttons, pop-up menus, sliders, more types of controls than you possibly even realized were in the macOS resort, uh, interface. And one last one, the, uh, the CRSR cursor resource. Uh, you could have a custom cursor in Kaleidoscope 2. Which, if I uh, remember correctly, was the 16 by 16, 256 color limitation. Uh, it wasn't the kind of thing that you might have seen on a Windows customization. I remember I had some friends with Windows boxes that could have animated cursors or cursors that you know left a, a long trail, more, more graphically uh, intensive. Yeah, no fancy customization, no mouse trails or anything like that. Just a just a plain replacement of the arrow. Yeah, like you said, they're basically a 16 by 16 icon, but then you also get the one additional control of specifying which pixel in that icon is the one that matters for clicking. So for the ordinary arrow, it's on the Mac, it's the top left pixel. The tip of the arrow is the one that matters for clicking. Whereas if your cursor changes for some other, for any reason now, say you're in web browser and it changes to a pointing hand cursor for, to click on a hyperlink, then the pixel that is the tip of that finger is noted as the one that counts for clicking. And you could do things like flip it to point to the right, and then you want to make sure that the top right rather than the top left pixel is the one that counts for clicking. So you could go into ResEdit and just start opening up these resources and changing the art yourself right there in ResEdit, but that doesn't give you a whole lot of flexibility. ResEdit, sure, you could have a pencil tool and a paint bucket tool and some basic shapes, but it wasn't going to give you the power of, say, a real graphics editor. Or in my case, I was not going to try to painstakingly recreate interface elements from Yosemite by clicking and dragging and redrawing them. I wanted to be able to import art. And that meant that I had to pretty broadly expand the selection of tools that I was going to use. So first off, off the bat, the Kaleidoscope 2.x format was already sort of breaking what ResEdit was capable of doing, because with the 1.x format, Kaleidoscope 1 format, it was no trouble because all of the artwork was small in the 16 by 16 range. And the CICN, I, I always called them Kickins. <laughs> I, I just, it just pronounce it, it looks like Kicken. <laughs> but those color icon resources the way that the resource type was defined was limited to you could change the size. They could be of arbitrary size, different than the ICL-8 resources that were fixed at 32 by 32. But the smallest that either dimension could be was 8 pixels, and the largest was 64. But if you remember that we said that some of the schemes that were created for Kaleidoscope 2 had huge artwork in them, they definitely exceeded 64 pixels. And you couldn't just go into ResEdit and say, make me a new one that's 128 pixels across. It would say, error must be 64 or less. But there were some tools that let you get around this. Now, as I recall, there was actually a patch for ResEdit itself where you would actually modify the ResEdit application and basically remove this limit I thought that the copy of ResEdit that I had from however many years ago had this done to it because I was always playing around in these color schemes, if not actually getting anything done with them. But turns out it wasn't. <laughs> and try as I might, I couldn't actually find the patch on the internet. Lots of other software, old classic Mac software, was available out on the internet. There were a couple of a couple of big resources for this that I found. One that I was surprised to find was uh, from my alma mater, 
uh, the University of Michigan, and they have a huge, huge archive at umich.edu slash tilde archive slash Mac. And there's just folders and folders and folders of old classic Mac software in there. And then there's uh, another good uh, emulation guide and list of software uh, called Immaculation, which... Clever. <laughs> very clever. And they have a list of some software there as well. And we'll put links to those in the show notes. You may have been able to ask Daniel Bogan, uh, who is currently a software developer at Flickr, but around the time that this was was active, uh, I think he was probably best known for maintaining the site waferbaby.com, and, uh, which had so many different sections that had different kinds of content. Uh, one of my favorite is he would do hand sketches and uh, layer them over black and white photography, and it, it was a long-running comic strip. But he also had some pixel art animations called Pixel, one word, P-I-X-H-E-L-L, in which he's actually reposted back on waferbaby.com. And he used the patched kick-in editor in ResEdit to draw each frame of these animations hand-drawn in the ResEdit kick-in editor. Right. And the, the distinct style that they have is that there's an option that you can toggle in ResEdit to show or hide grid lines between each pixel. And so in those animations, the grid lines are on, which gives it this even more pixely feel, I think. The series gets uh, kind of violent, and so it's almost like the icons are fighting each other. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so I didn't have a patched version of ResEdit, which was a bit of a bummer. Um, so what I had to do was use a separate utility that a lot of Kaleidoscope schemers advocated using anyway, which was called clip to kicken um, I think that's maybe where I got the, the pronunciation from, because it's weird to say clip to C-I-C-N, and it's not C-L-I-P to C-I-C-N, it's clip like the clipboard. This little utility takes whatever you put on your clipboard and then inserts it into a file as a kicken resource, and it has the list of Kaleidoscope resources already built into it. So you can say, oh, this is going to be a button of this type. So I'm going to go look under button, and it looks up the resource ID for you so that you don't have to remember that the button resource is negative 10,621 or whatever it is, because they all had these integer resource IDs. Uh, and I think they were all negative for the Kaleidoscope ones. There were some sort of conventions about how you were supposed to number resources but I don't recall exactly what they were. I think pretty much anything that was in the high negatives was sort of reserved for developers to use however they wanted. And so the Kaleidoscope resources took many, many, many of those sort of like negative 7,000 and negative 12,000 numbers to indicate various kick-in resources, various artwork resources within the files. I wonder if, if, if it's a uh, developer and any kind of customization, because I remember if you would ever, uh, in the Finder Get Info window, you would paste an icon, a custom icon onto a file. In that file's resource fork, the icon resource for the, the pasted-on custom icon would be negative uh, 16,455. I don't know why that number is still in my head after all these years. Nope, my, right in my head, too. I, I was wondering if you were going to get it, and I was like... No. Minus one six four five five. I think I typed it way too many times <laughs> growing up. Mm -hmm. um, just because sometimes that was actually easier than <laughs> going into get get info and pasting. Yeah. Or you know you would paste it in and you would get some unexpected result, so you had to go into Resident anyway. But yeah, there were these GUI utilities to help with this, especially with those window and control resources where you had to basically count out pixels to denote different regions of the art. And a couple of these were called Pink Elephants, which was a third-party product, and then Scheme Factory, which I believe was being developed by the same team that was developing Kaleidoscope, or was at least promoted as sort of a first-party product on the Kaleidoscope website. And I thought, hey, I'm definitely going to use these now. I remember them being shareware and not having like full access to them, 
back in the day, and I I'd never paid for Kaleidoscope for shareware or these for shareware. And I thought, you know, at this point, you know, that boat has sailed. If I have to find a registration number for these somewhere, fell off the back of the truck on the internet, I don't think anyone's going to miss it. And I'll be really happy to use these utilities. Unfortunately, I didn't get that far because even though I was able to download 68K versions of both of these applications, and yeah, the emulator that I'm running is running a 68K Mac rather than a Power Mac. I got them downloaded, installed, double click, crash (laughs) every time for both. So I didn't even get to a registration screen for either one. And it meant that I was back to the manual way. I'm guessing it wasn't easy. It was not easy. (laughs) So first of all, let's talk about just getting set up inside the emulator. One of the most popular classic Mac emulators is called Basilisk. And it comes with two pieces called Basilisk 2 and Basilisk 2 GUI. The GUI looks like some terrible Java app that just has the sit the settings for how you're actually going to start up this virtual machine. And you have to go in there and you have to specify a ROM image. You have to specify a disk image with a valid system folder, those sorts of things. You have to do it with absolute paths on your OS X setup. So even if you have it in, like, say, on your desktop, you can't say tilde slash desktop slash Mac ROM You have to put the full paths. And the very helpful GUI app does not let you copy or paste anything. (laughs) So you have to either type them in manually or use something like uh, I use Keyboard Maestro. I have a Keyboard Maestro macro that will enter the clipboard text instead of by pasting as if it were being all typed out. That's the first main hurdle is just getting the emulator up and running. Then you realize that you have to install Kaleidoscope. You can download still the latest version of Kaleidoscope from the Kaleidoscope website as a .sit.hqx file, which probably you remember quite well, Brian, downloading many of those back in the day. Yeah. You would have to download the download extractor application before any of your downloads would work, much like the like hacky stand-up joke of how do you open a package of new scissors? You need the scissors first. Yeah, so... These were Stuff It archives, and I had no idea Stuff It Expander still exists, is still under active development, and has an OS X version, and is free. So actually, this is the first time in this workflow where I started sort of splitting the OS X and classic Mac worlds. So I downloaded Stuff It Expander. It works. It's way easier to just double-click on the archive in your downloads folder than to try to get stuff at Expander to open it within the emulator. So I did this for lots of things. I did this for the Kaleidoscope installer. I did it for scheme files. I did it for the archives of the scheme list mailing list. All these came down as .sit files and stuff at Expander, I think 16, which is now owned by, I'm not sure, it's been passed around many, many times from its origins with Aladdin systems. Mm. But just totally happily works on an Intel Mac running Yosemite. And that was how I got access to many of these files. I then went to install Kaleidoscope and realized that the startup image that I was using, which was an off-the-shelf startup image, I had first found this when I was trying to open some old Clarisworks files, and someone had put together a useful little kit that included Basilisk, the ROM, and the startup image. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. And I went to install it and it said, we're sorry, you don't have enough space on the startup disk. So I had to create a new disk image that was larger, copy over a new system folder, bless the new system folder, restart, install Kaleidoscope, we're up and running. At this point, we've barely gotten to the point of actually editing the schemes. So the next thing to do was I thought, well, gee, I need a starting point here. If I just open up a brand new ResEdit file and start creating resources, this is never going to work. 
because you would never be able to test it because you would open it in Kaleidoscope and it would go, no, 90% of the required resources are not here and probably just crash. <laughs> Fortunately, there was a lot of documentation available for scheme creation. And there was also a open source scheme called Regia that has basically all of the resources that you need to create a Kaleidoscope 2 scheme, and you can use these as templates and starting points. And like I said, this was over 200 art resources and probably close to 100 control info resources in this starter scheme. And I went from that and started modifying. I started with the basic window border because, of course, you know it's going to look the most like Yosemite if you can actually get the white Yosemite windows with the new flat stop sign widgets, that's going to you know really be a good start. So to do this, I knew that I needed to create sort of a, a mini Yosemite window and get it into the appropriate kick-in resource, which is obvious because you know this one, you, you don't even have to look them up. You can just go in and you say, ah, that one's the one that looks like the window. So to do this, I had several steps. First, open up a window on the Yosemite Mac, make it as small as possible just for convenience. Take a screenshot, open up said screenshot in Photoshop on OS X, fortunately. Chop it down further to size. Now what? How do we get it into the emulator? So you can set up a folder in Basilisk that shows as basically a network share drive that is a window between the emulated classic world and the OS X side. And it shows up as a little network drive in basilisk that says unix it's like this is the foreign land don't go here and so i did that and then i could start putting the graphics files into there and then open them up in the emulator the question was what format could i use and then what application could i actually use to open them in system 7 any guesses brian I actually, before I saw your notes, I could have guessed this because I also use this program a lot as a a very poor replacement for Photoshop in those days, but it was Graphic Converter, one word, camel cased. Yep. Another app, which is still around to this day Mm -hmm. in a significantly changed form, but still around. They have a link on their website that says you can download old versions, but they don't have a link where you can download ancient versions. (laughs) So <laughs> it was not directly available from them, but it was available on the the Umish archive that I mentioned a little bit ago. And I think it's Graphic Converter 2.2. Anyway, Graphic Converter will open .png files, uh, PNG8 files. So Photoshop can save out PNGs. Graphic Converter can open PNGs. We've got the little wormhole Unix folder between the two operating systems. So take a screenshot, prep it in Photoshop, save it into the Unix access folder, switch over to Basilisk, open that thing up in Graphic Converter, which you can't double-click it because, as you may recall, in the System 7 days, the only way that the system knew what application to open a file with was from its type and creator code. Right, a four-letter code. Yeah, there were these alphanumeric four-letter codes and I'm not even sure what graphic converters is, but there were ones, you know, like simple text was TTXT and Clarisworks for some reason was Bobo. <laughs> but they were unique, unique to each application. Yeah, uh, I remember that the uh, QuickTime movie files file type was capital M, uh, lowercase OO, capital V, a movie. <laughs> That's right. So they had no idea what application to open in, so I had to drag and drop them onto graphic converter. Then, Graphic Converter, for some reason, doesn't like PNG files with small dimensions and would occasionally add a pixel or accidentally crop these small files. So I would, like, lose two pixels off the edge. So then it's back to Photoshop, make the file with some padding and white space, go back to Graphic Converter, can't use Select All, have to draw a marquee around it, copy. Now, finally, we can go to Clip to Kickin. Open that guy up, uh, say which file you want to insert it to, choose from the list, and paste it in, and it says, 
it has a little two pane view current clipboard and current icon and you paste it in and it goes blank. <laughs> oh no, what has happened? Well, you have to go into ResEdit because these these kick and resources had three different modes. They had the color, they had the black and white version, and they had the mask, which was just a one bit alpha mask on or off. And a lot of the times clip to kicken would accidentally decide that the mask was 100% white. In other words, do not show any of the pixels. And so you'd have to go in and manually fix this. Now, I learned the hard way. Do not do this until after you have quit clip to kicken because the classic macOS does not take kindly to having the same file open with two applications at the same time which is precisely what the situation that I had created by then jumping back over into ResEdit and trying to fix the mask. I did this at one point. Errors started popping up. I went, oh no, oh no, close everything. Don't save, don't save. It was too late. The whole file had been completely corrupted and useless. <laughs> Jeez. I think that was early in the game, and I had lost maybe only about a half hour of work because I had just happened to think, you know, I ought to make a copy of this file just because. And I now have a folder that has... Uh, a bunch of kaleidoscope schemes that are Yosemite, Yosemite copy one, Yosemite copy two, <laughs> up to about eight or nine. <laughs> Such were the days of doing anything in a system seven. We called those backups. <laughs> those are not backups. <laughs> but yeah, so that was sort of just the process of getting any of the artwork in. Lots of various steps just to get there. Then I had to create the window resource that says which part of that mini window corresponds to the real window. This is complex. There are some really good guides that give clear instructions on how this works, but the system itself is not obvious. So there's one that's linked on the Kaleidoscope webpage called the K2 Intro, which has some really clear diagrams that shows, okay, you mark the inside of the window box and then the top, the four edges, and then the top edge where all the close, minimize, and zoom buttons go, you have to specify where they are. And by doing this, you say, okay, I'm going along in a line from left to right. Where does the close box start? Where does the next button start? Where does the title start? Where does the title end? And you have to give these as coordinates. And there's a OS 10, there are probably a couple OS 10 software tools that do this. The one I'm thinking of is Xscope by the Icon Factory. And like, it works very well. And a lot of people use it, but not as great a landscape of software for this kind of stuff back then. No, I mean, I could have used something like Xscope to count pixels in OS X and then use those numbers to go back. Oh yeah, copy them over. Right, because I'm entering these numbers by hand. Remember, if I had Scheme Factory open, it would be great. I could just drag regions or uh, insert a line where the borders for each of these regions were, but that was not the case. I had to put in the numbers. Now comes the maddening part. You have to indicate which sort of region it is by means of a code within the resource, uh, 0 through 18. So there are these various parts of the window. Edge, end cap, close box, zoom box, collapse box, title, crumple zone, period repeat, no close box, no zoom box, stretch with scaling, etc., so first you had to indicate which type that was, and then you had to indicate where the border of that was. The most maddening thing about the Kaleidoscope 2 format is that it has two distinct ways of counting pixels and sometimes uses both of them within the same resource. So for some specifications within the resource, the first pixel is zero. And for some specifications, the first pixel is one. And you have to count from there and compensate accordingly. Lots of guess and check was involved, especially with resources like button resources and menu resources where you specify one pixel that is the text color. So you've got one black pixel chilling out in the middle of the rest of the artwork, and then you have to say what the coordinates of that pixel are. And try as you might to actually count it accurately by the time you remember which counting scheme it uses and the fact that they specify the y-coordinate first and the x-coordinate second, which, if you remember anything of middle school math, has you completely backwards. Yes. And also, those y-coordinates are counting down. It was just guess and check for me. 
It was like, this resource is only 16 by 16, and it's somewhere in the middle. I'm going to start with 7 by 7, 7, and just kind of wander from there, keep reloading the scheme until it comes out right. (laughs) Parts of this were fun. Parts of this were maddening. I think, actually, apart from getting the scheme up and running, and as far as I got it was, I have window borders, functional window widgets, semi-functional buttons, menus that look white, which is about as close as you can get. Yeah, I'd say I got it over half of the way there to the Yosemite interface. And given enough time, you definitely could have gotten all the way. But I think the most interesting lesson from this was not necessarily what it took to make a kaleidoscope scheme. I kind of knew that already, was that it was totally possible. You had to have attention to detail. You had to go through and make sure that you checked all the boxes and made sure that every single control was specified properly so you didn't have weird, unexpected results in little corners of the interface. But I think the most interesting thing was just spending hours of time back working in System 7. And I found a number of things. We take for granted all of the excellent basic interface changes that have happened in OS 8, OS 9, and even from 10.3 on. So, Brian, I, I have a little quiz for you. I have, I have a list here of things that I tried to do in, in System 7 that absolutely do not work. All right. Would, would you like to hazard some guesses? Sure. Clearly, there's no sidebar. That was OS 10 only, right? There's no finder sidebar, but that was not a big, big encumbrance to me because I almost always turn that off in OS 10 anyway. Okay. Um, a search like field in the title bar? Yeah, that that's another big improvement. I guess like all that title bar stuff is new to OS 10. Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking like even more basic interface stuff. Let me see. The three widgets at the top are close, minimize and zoom in OS 10 and they were pretty much that from uh OS 8 onwards, but in System 7.5 that you're in, there would be no minimize. Actually, no. In, in System 7.5, we were, we, we were there. Okay. Um, we, had, we had minimize. But the one thing that tripped me up with that was that many kaleidoscope schemes put all three widgets in the top left corner, just like OS X did eventually, even though in Classic Mac, they were split with the close box in the top left and the other two in the top right. The thing that I forgot is that they were in a different order. So as they are now, they make the stoplight pattern, which goes close, minimize, zoom. But if you looked at them left to right in Classic Mac, they went close, zoom, minimize. This threw me off when I first set up the window because I got all the controls in the right place and then I clicked the zoom widget and it and it window shaded the window. <laughs> and I went, oh, I got to change that. <laughs> Uh, more generally, I think there's a lot of translucency. You said getting the m- menus white was <laughs> yeah, that's close enough as you're going to get for Yosemite, but there's translucency everywhere. I was able to get some translucency, but it doesn't look good. It doesn't do the sort of fade effect. It doesn't do the blur effect that the modern translucency does. It's just straight alpha channel. So anything that's behind it is completely legible. I guess it's kind of like how it was in 10.0. Yeah. What it, what does Apple call that in Yosemite? It's got some kind of... Vibrancy. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Vibrancy. Um, there was no vibrancy, no. Now, here are some of the basic things that I tried to do that kept tripping me up all the time. First thing that I disabused myself of very quickly, there is no quick look in the Finder. Oh, sure. <laughs> you can highlight an icon and hit space all day, and it will just go to the first alphabetical thing in the in the folder every time. I got over that pretty quickly. I didn't really need to quick look any of, you know, anything that I had that I was going to quick look would be the image files. Mm-hmm. I could switch back over to the OS X Finder and quick look it there. The other thing that I tried to do right off the bat, this is a recent one, and I felt really dumb. You remember in OS 8, the windows had sort of nice thick borders around all the sides. Yes. I thought... Oh, yeah, of course, I can grab those and resize the window. 
Nope. No, just from the corner. Just from the corner. And you know, that was only a couple years ago in OS ten. that, was that in Lion that we got that? Mm-hmm. And that's one that I take totally for granted because I do that dozens of times every day. Another thing, no command tab app switcher. Oh, yeah. I was going to bring that up. Definitely not with any kind of heads-up display like we get in OS ten, But I think in OS eight, you could start doing that. Or whenever whenever we got the, uh, you could pull down the application menu at the upper right corner and have it sitting there. I think command tab cycled through that. Might have, yeah. So I think that was an OS eight feature because 7.5 has the application menu in the top right, but it doesn't have the little tear off palette, which I definitely remember using in the OS eight and OS nine days. And I think it worked for System 7, but it might have been OS 8 only. There was a third-party application called Light Switcher, L-I-T-E Switcher, that basically ported that feature and looked identical to the Alt-Tab Switcher on Windows at the time. And I remember having that installed and finding that very useful on the classic Mac. I probably should have gone and found a copy (laughs) uh, for within my emulator, although the emulator environment was fragile enough already. I was down to the very bare minimum of extensions and stuff that I was loading anyway, just because I wanted to keep things as clean as possible. Basilisk would crash all... I I found every single way to crash Basilisk. (laughs) It would sometimes just lock up. Sometimes it would totally quit the wrapper application, the, you know, the OS 10 application would just boom, unexpectedly quit. I would get bombs. I would every single step of the way I was crashing it. And I don't really know if it was because the emulation environment itself is particularly fragile or whether I've just happily, happily forgotten that that was about how stable system 7.5.3 really was. One other thing that I tried to, that I kept doing is in system seven menus do not stay open unless you keep the mouse button down. So you have to click and drag. And especially if you're going to a sub menu, it seems pretty laborious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like super first world problems, right? Oh my gosh, I have to click and drag to yeah. do my menus. But it's one of those nice little features that Apple brought in at some point. People have been requesting it. They they brought it in, and it's just part of how we consider that computers work these days, is that you can open up a menu, and it'll stay there. And especially, I had to select from some fairly long menus in Clip2Kickin, because it had the alphabetical list of all of the different resource types. Mm-hmm. So the word checkbox is somewhere in this menu of 30 things, but not alphabetized. Well, if I was doing that in OS X, I would click on the menu and I'd type CH and it would just jump to it. Mm-hmm. No such luck. <laughs> so all of these little features that have come in over the years are really improvements, and now I have a new appreciation for them. Except the one feature that got broken in OS X and was broken for years and years and years, and Apple finally decided to just get rid of it in Yosemite, is the Zoom widget which now in Yosemite makes an app go full screen instead of trying to resize the window. Because if you've ever done this in OS X, open up a Finder window, click the green button, I swear it just picks a random size. Yeah, you have no idea what it's gonna, what you're going to end up with. It has no idea what it's doing. And if you do this in System 7, you open up a Finder window, and you click the little zoom box, and it fits perfectly every time. And if you click it again... It goes back to exactly the size that it was before. And if it won't fit on the whole screen, it makes the window the size of the whole screen. Really intuitive, and I've been missing that one for 15 years and was hoping that, you know, someday someone on the Finder team at Apple would just get it together and rewrite that code and bring it back. But it seems that the decision instead has been, well, that never really worked. Let's just toss it. I remember that very clearly. I used to obsessively go into each window and resize it. I was always in icon view. So if I ever deleted a file or added a new file to a folder, I would just click the zoom window and it would adjust the size. You could see all the icons without having to scroll. 
And this was again in a time where navigating to a new folder or a new volume would always open its own finder window rather than continuing to be in the same window you were in. So maybe it made more sense in that world that each window would have its own size that corresponded to its specific contents rather than in OS 10 where you're like, well, this is going to be your essentially like a browser window through your disk file tree. So who knows how big it'll need to be the next time you go somewhere. Right. And remember that in the first public beta of, I think it was DP1 of OS 10. I forget if it was just a mode. There was the single window mode. And I think at first it was the only mode. Like you opened the finder in OS 10 and there's one window and that's all you get. Yeah. And you know, people just said, well, if that's how you're going to be, we can't use the Mac anymore. Yeah. So, you know, they took a step back on that and said, no, 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 you're, you're, you're right. Having multiple windows, that's like, that's a key piece of the Mac interface and we're going to keep that. But they didn't really go to the trouble of getting quite all of that functionality in terms of window position back to OS X. And I don't know. I miss it. Do you remember having to rebuild your desktop? I do. Oh, and that would that would destroy all your window positions, wouldn't it? It would. It <sighs> would. Of course, your windowed positions get completely destroyed just because, you know, you walked out of the room now on OS X. So, you know, eh. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes. <laughs> so... I have the scheme that I've put together. It looks a bit like OS X Yosemite, and we'll put some screenshots up on the website. But there were definitely some limitations and some things that I realized I could never get quite right just because of the limitations of the scheme format and the sort of advances that have come in interface in OS X and especially the more recent versions of OS X. So one thing that I couldn't do, there are no hover states for window widgets. So you have the active state, the inactive state, and the pressed state. But as we know, in OS X, if you mouse over the stoplight widgets, that's when they get their little indications, the X minus plus, or now the opposing arrows for full screen, that give you an additional cue as to what's going to happen when you push those buttons. So those didn't exist. Also in Yosemite, and actually in many versions of OS X, the default button in, say, a dialog box is colored. And in, say, Mavericks, even it was like a pulsing blue. You might not even notice it. It just sort of fades into the background. It's very subtle. But there's actually an animation there. And not only could I not do the animation in Kaleidoscope, but you can't even have a differently colored button as the default. What they used were rings around the buttons. And you'll remember that from OS 8 and then even from System 7, it was just basically a thick black border around each button. So you can modify the border, but you couldn't modify the button itself. So default buttons are all going to be white. One other thing is that Kaleidoscope lets you change the system font. And as we know, in Yosemite, the system font changed to Helvetica Noia from Lucid Grand. But I could not figure any way of getting Helvetica Noia <laughs> into a readable format in System 7. The version that ships with OS X is a .otf font file. And there may be some sort of magic way to convert that into a true type something something that then could be coerced into being a font suitcase and dropped through the Unix wormhole into Basilisk. And <laughs> But it allowed me to use just plain Helvetica, and I said, that was close enough. There's also no way to get like the proper scroll bar behavior. As we know, that's been changing with the addition of trackpads, with the automatically hiding scroll bars in more recent versions of OS X, I can make the scroll bars more or less look like the always-on scroll bars, or I could make them, as I chose to, look like the overlay scroll bars, but then that sort of messes with the dimensions of the edge of the window, and I couldn't quite figure out how to get it so that, say, they would go all the way down into the corner instead of stopping short in that region where you have to click to resize all windows in, in System 7. So 
That's another not quite, but close. Making the scroll bars, though, I gotta say, was the easiest artwork of the whole experience because they are white. <laughs> so I didn't have to go into Photoshop. I didn't have to go into Graphic Converter. I just went into ResEdit and went select all delete. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a nice fun part. And one last little touch that I added near the end here was the Apple menu icon. That was also customizable in Kaleidoscope, which was a cool little feature. And so I made it the plain black Apple logo like we have in OS X. But there is no pressed state for that. So when you select the Apple menu, you get a blue highlight color and a black anti-aliased Apple logo, and it looks not good. In the end, I realized that this was doable, but it was a lot of work. I got, I would say, a little bit over half of the way there. And I realized that there are so many little interface pieces, checkboxes, pull-down menus, pop-up menus, things that don't even exist in OS X anymore, like the pop-up windows that you could attach to the bottom of the screen. And each one of these, from going from the whole workflow from screenshot to actively work in control was probably taking me an hour or two with three or four or five basilisk crashes along the way. <laughs> I'm glad that I went through the experience. I think that it gave me some really good perspective on not only what people were going through to make kaleidoscope schemes when kaleidoscope was in its heyday. I appreciate how much work goes into it. And I appreciated it then too, because I realized that I was not willing to spend the time then I was willing to spend more time now, but maybe not the whole time. Well, I appreciate your work, too, because I was not willing to spend the time even today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it would be I thought it would be a fun story, and I hope all listeners have enjoyed it as well, even if it's a rambling dark dive back into the old days of Mac OS. But yeah, uh, so that's it for this episode of Simple Beep. Like Ed said at the top of the show, you can find our show notes for this episode, including screenshots of the Yosemite Kaleidoscope scheme at simplebeep.com. And you can send us feedback from our website. There's a link at the top. Or you can talk to us on Twitter. Our show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. And my Twitter is ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And my Twitter handle is at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And we had a very helpful suggestion from a listener to put links to our own Twitter handles up on the website, and you can find that there now on our About page. So that wraps it up for today. We are going to have one more episode in 2014. We're going to have a special Christmas episode that we'll be releasing on Christmas Eve. After that, we're going to be taking our own little holiday break, and we'll be back with episode 5 sometime in mid-January. Until then, thanks for listening.